Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Vincent is a professorial fellow in the Department of Geography and Environmental Sciences at the University of Birmingham. He specialises in the biogeochemistry, which is a fascinating term, one we should all learn about, of carbon-rich terrestrial ecosystems. Vincent's work primarily focuses on the exchange of greenhouse gases into and out of peatlands and wetlands, all of which contributes to the research being undertaken by BIFOR, Birmingham's Institute of Forest Research. Thank you for joining us today, Vincent. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, your work sounds incredibly interesting. Uh, is your research solely on carbon transfer? Uh, predominantly, um, but I often don't look at carbon in the traditional form that is considered, uh, which is uh, CO2, when, when considering exchanges uh, between ecosystems and the atmosphere. Uh, more often, I look at what we call trace gases. So that would be methane and N2O. Uh, but also I look at other other forms of transfer, like lateral flows of transfer, where it's organic carbon that's dissolved in water that uh, seeps out and into rivers. Uh, so it's quite varied. And yeah, I, I would say methane forms the major component of, of my research. And I imagine in your research, you identify that it creates a positive feedback loop? Well, it can do. Um, methane, I mean, it's it's incredibly powerful greenhouse gas. Um, so, you know, there is the danger that if you produce more methane, that it can create more warming. And because a lot of methane is produced by microbial processes, uh, which are, you know, biological systems, Ultimately, if you warm a biological system, it will produce more methane. And this was a question that was posed in a recent Royal Society discussion meeting. Is warming creating warming via the effects on methane? So it's, it's particularly important to consider the, the feedbacks and the effects uh, that are having on uh, that humans are having on methane production and emission. Very much so. And where is your current area of study at the moment? Well, I, I study all over the place, really. I, I have projects in uh, Southeast Asia right now. I'm still writing up some data from uh, the neotropics, from places like Panama and the Amazon, um, and also from places like Peru. But I do have projects in the UK. Um, so one of the projects I have is with a PhD student who's really interested in looking at the carbon effects of beaver dams, of all things. So we're reintroducing beavers in the UK, uh, albeit on a small scale, um, but in flooding certain areas of land, which tend to be sort of forested, riparian uh, environments um, that don't normally get flooded, uh, you, you get all sorts of effects in terms of the carbon balance. So those are quite unclear right now, particularly in a UK context. So so we're examining that, and that's quite a long-term project. Um, another project I have, or that I'm partly involved with, because I can't say it's my project, it's, it's a huge project uh, just north of Birmingham, is the is the FACE experiment, uh, which is, it's a free air CO2 enrichment experiment. So essentially, it's exposing forests to the sort of CO2 that you would expect to see in the year 2050. 
So it's a bit of a time travel experiment, but it's being done at a huge scale. So a whole forest is being manipulated experimentally in this way. And I'm just a, a very tiny part of that. I'm, I'm interested, as you probably imagine from what I've said before, in the methane exchanges that are going on there, because as, as we know, carbon goes into and out of ecosystems in very different ways. So it's interesting to see how ecosystems will respond to future climate change and the drivers of future climate change like enrichments of CO2. You've been one of the Royal Geographical Society's lead uh, contributors to the series 39 Ways to Save the Planet, which we have worked on in partnership with the BBC. Can you tell us what the programme is about? Yeah, the, the programme is about, I would say it's it, it's tending to avoid what many other projects are, are seeking to do, which is kind of the silver bullet and you know something that would solve climate change very quickly or simply via uh, you know an immediate and wide scale solution and the natural one to consider is is fossil fuel use reduction and you know that's where a lot of the focus has been what's happened in 39 ways to save the planet is is there's recognition of the sort of small marginal gains that can be had from lots of individual projects that each can take a little bite out of what is contributing to climate change. So it, it's it's a fascinating series of programmes uh, with a wide-ranging uh, number of, of technologies that can all be applied in that respect. And, it, and it's fascinating to, to see, you know, it, the sorts of things that are being considered are from, you know, rewilding Siberia to making photosynthesis work better in plants to how to deal with cows. Um, in all those, they, they all contribute a little bit to um, making climate change better or to alleviating climate change. And it's really when you add them all up that you see their real power. I've created a, a modest amount of teaching resources on the series and I've loved how positive it's been. It's, it's, tried, to, it's tried to think of solutions, hasn't it, the series? Yes, I agree. I think um, the great danger currently with the, uh, the climate narrative and the way it's interpreted is uh, I, I hesitate to use the word doomerism, but there is a lot of doom associated with climate change. And you can see why, because, you know, if we don't do certain things, then, uh, and we don't aim to reduce climate change, then the effects can be quite, um, quite dramatic. Um, but what we see in this series of programs is really a, an, an element of hope and ingenuity that, you know, for all the human caused influences and in climate change, there are also elements of human ingenuity which could seek to resolve some of these or at least take a chunk out of them. You mentioned in one episode about dry seed uh, rice. Uh, what is it and uh, why is it beneficial? Okay, so this is this is one of the ways in which uh, land use could be modified to uh, alleviate emissions of greenhouse gases, and specifically in this case, it would be methane. So most rice is grown in a sort of a system called puddled uh, transplantation, which is very labour intensive, requires a lot of water, um, and as a consequence of that, you get a lot of methane being produced because methane is produced in predominantly anaerobic or uh, conditions. So the soils have to be very soggy in order for uh, methane to be produced. So if you can grow rice without having those soggy soils, you immediately have a potential solution to rice methane emissions. Um, it's not without its problems, though. 
so you know many rice areas are already quite wet and so it's a case of getting the water off the land for irrigated rice it actually can be useful because in 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 many places there's there's issues with water availability so if you're having to irrigate them um that you know you need water from somewhere um if you no longer have to irrigate them to get them quite so wet then you you actually have a greater security of supply in that um in that crop i mean other problems could could exist uh you could get um in in basically moving water off the land quickly it could have downstream hydrological effects and uh, that are currently not considered properly so if there was a wholesale uh, move towards um, dry seeded rice it could be a, a potential problem for downstream flooding for example it underscores the complexity of all these decisions and, and knock-on effects absolutely absolutely and and you know one of the knock-on effects also is that if you can have uh, dry seeded rice then you could be competing with other crops in other places as well and it does open up the thought that you could grow rice and and anywhere and one of the major issues right now is is land use change um and moving and if you what you want to do is you want to move away from a situation where you're deforesting to create land for crops to a situation where you can intensify your crop production so you don't have to deforest and indeed you can go the other way and have natural forest regeneration which would then draw out carbon and would be an added win. In a in another episode a bit close to home um, you focus on giving commentary about underwater seagrass meadows and you talk about the importance of the slow carbon cycle in our oceans. Why is it so important to conserve and, and regrow our um seagrass meadows yeah i mean seagrass meadows are a kind of a a, a hidden uh, rainforest if you like they're hidden because they're under the sea so we don't we don't see them uh, very much but what they what they do do is soak up a lot of carbon and and one of the weird things i came across when researching seagrass meadows is that they can actually form peat underwater which is a long-term store of carbon so you know, if if you're getting rid of these seagrass meadows, you're no longer adding to these these beds of carbon, um, and they do seem to be particularly good at taking carbon out of out of marine systems. So, given that you've got equilibriums between the the CO two and the atmosphere and what's going on in the in the ocean, if you can shift that equilibrium, and you know, you you would help certainly with issues like ocean acidification, but you could also perhaps improve uptake of CO2 in the in the marine realm um, from the atmosphere. Rewilding has also captured the imagination of the UK public with huge success at Net Wildland and beaver reintroduction on the River Otter. Your research found that the removal of trees in Siberia might prevent soil methane being trapped and emitted. Yeah, so this is really just applying my research um, in very different locations and and trying to see what might happen as a consequence of you know the really exciting uh, Siberian rewilding projects that are underway right now <clears throat> and essentially in those projects one of one of the ideas is to change the assemblage of animals that are um, on the Siberian steppe uh, in such a way as to replicate the conditions of the Pleistocene during the Ice Ages. Um, so the the idea is, you know, these major large mammals, mammoths, for example, are taken out of the system, and and those 
mammals would have been churning up the soil and also um, grazing that area in such a way that you wouldn't have had much tree growth. Now, one of the issues with Siberia is that there's, there's trees coming back, which many people think is a good thing. Um, but actually, in terms of the reflectance of, of incoming light from the sun, uh, actually, it absorbs more heat if you have trees than if you have um, sort of you know grassy uh, step type ecosystem. Um, and and really, in applying my research in other locations, that we know that trees in soggy type environments, that sort of thing you'd find in the Siberian steppe, is that you, the trees could entrain methane from quite deep down. Uh, and take, funnel it out to the atmosphere. Now, this is unproven. I don't know if it's been looked at. I mean, certainly love to get out there and, and see if this is a, a, a process that's happening. Um, but, but certainly funneling powerful greenhouse gases is not something that we'd want to do. So if you can reduce the trees in those environments, then it's quite likely that you'd cut that element out as well. So it's an, an additional bonus. I mean, one other element of having trees growing in these ecosystems is that they uh, can leak carbohydrates that they fix from photosynthesis into the the soil rhizosphere and one of the recently recognized processes of this is that the addition of sort of very um available carbohydrate from the roots can actually prime the decomposition of surrounding existing carbon that might have been a bit more resistant to decay so it's possible that trees in these kinds of ecosystems could be enabling the decomposition of old carbon, which is something you don't really want to do. So that's another added bonus of rewilding, uh, that you know the removal of trees in that specific situation would be a, a net benefit in terms of climate contribution. What's the benefit of engineering greater crop productivity from farming areas in your episode titled Phenomenal Photosynthesis? Yes, this is a really interesting episode where the... People who are proposing the technology suggest that they can add something, a nanoparticle, and it can boost photosynthesis and the uptake of carbon into plants. Um, and this kind of summarises in a nutshell how uh, certain technologies can be beneficial for climate, uh, but without expecting to be. So one of the main reasons behind the use of this technology is or one of the main justifications is that it can boost productivity without additional nitrogen fertilizers. Now we know nitrogen fertilizers require a lot of fossil fuels to be produced. So if you have less nitrogen fertilizers being put in, not only do you have less fossil fuel uh, use and less CO2 emissions from that process, um, but you also have greater uptake by the plant. And also you'll get the other benefit of less N2O being produced. But one of the hidden effects of boosting productivity for a given area using modified plants in this way is that you actually have less demand for land. And anything that you do to take land out of production for food can then be turned back into something uh, that can be used for a natural climate solution, like natural reforestation, for example. So in taking the pressures off deforestation and allowing scope for potential new forestry of, or natural forest regrowth, you have an additional climate win that's not often recognised. So it's it's really it's um, a technology that can uh, shift the balance of land use intensity for crops uh, away 
from deforestation and towards an a, a time where actually you can start to revert land back towards uh, natural forest. Cutting the Cow Burps was a very catchy title of a different episode. Um, there are over 1 billion cows on the planet. Why are they a problem and how could their feed help solve the issue? Okay, so cows contribute roughly a fifth of all the methane that's emitted out to the atmosphere. It's huge. They're, they're a major emitter of methane. And this is kind of a byproduct of of cows having to chew sort of complex carbohydrates like grasses, etc., that they're fed um, and process those in their rumen where they harbour certain microorganisms. And in this case, it would be methanogens that ultimately break down that compl- complexity of, of um, carbohydrates into methane as a byproduct. So it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a mini wetland or a mini bog in their stomach, if you like. And it's a real problem because people like to eat meat and people like to drink milk. And and we've got a booming popul- population. So, you know, people want to eat this and, and drink milk. Uh, so anything that you can do to reduce the emission of that methane or to cope with it, it's got to be a climate win. I think I mentioned previously that it's it's an incredibly powerful greenhouse gas. One of the additional benefits of of addressing methane emissions is that methane is only in the atmosphere for around 10 years. It's what's known as a short-lived greenhouse gas. So this actually presents us with an opportunity. Anything you do today to address methane can have an effect over a, dec- a decadal timescale. So it's a quick win. So that's why we should be addressing things like methane emissions from from cows. I think there's other experiments going on at the moment as well. One springs to mind in uh, Brad's farm in uh, uh, up in Lancashire, where they are f- trying out garlic feed, I think, for cows, which is also being found to reduce methane emissions. Yes. So it, it seems that there's um, there's something to do with certain amendments or feed amendments or feed additions, which if they contain certain compounds, so in this case it would be sulfurous compounds associated with garlic. In another case, like with the red seaweed, it's more like a a bromine-rich compound. It seems that if you introduce those into the diet, they do reduce the emissions from these cows. So that's that's great. That's kind of a technological fix that you can add something to the feed in order to reduce what's coming out from their burps, essentially. But that's just one element of what you can do uh, to address methane emissions from cows. I mean, w- one other study that's cited in the program shows that there's a huge genetic influence on cows. The variability between different cattle can be massive in terms of their emissions. So if you can understand the genetics of methane production in cattle, then that's another step in the direction of breeding to reduce emissions. And another another technological fix, which is one I, I favour less, and that's mentioned in the programme, is you, know, you can potentially trap the methane that's coming off and use it. Uh, and I'm less in favour of that. I mean, there's some talk of you know putting masks on cattle and you know, these, these aren't particularly practical and they probably have welfare implications for the animals themselves. 
The other one is also trapping it within um, cattle sheds and and somehow using that as a, a biogas. Um, again, I think there's a lot of technical issues with that. Generally, it's hard to contain things in an airtight way. So I think we need to look beyond that and certainly reducing the number of cattle. So eating a little less meat, drinking a little less milk, having cattle that are genetically better at processing their feed so that they don't produce quite so much methane. And then in combination with these certain additives, I think together are, are ways of addressing that problem. Bamboo is Better uh, is an episode on carbon absorption and building materials. Uh, you argue that bamboo is better. Um, better than what and, and why? Yeah, bamboo is really useful. Um, it, it, you can use it for all sorts of things. And when you make carbon useful for something that you use every day, especially if it's if it's uh, something that um, has a long lifetime, then what you're doing is you're, the carbon that's been taken up by that bamboo is then essentially being stored. Now, listeners to this program won't be able to see this, but I've got shelving behind me that's made from bamboo. So it shows how useful it is. It's, it's bamboo holding up books that are made from cellulose from trees. So that bamboo is essentially taking carbon out of the atmosphere and locking it away as long as the lifetime of that shelf um, is, is, is pretty long. And there's no reason why that shelf can't last for many decades. So that's, that's why bamboo is good. The other major element of why it's good is that it can grow so fast. It grows everywhere. It's a grass that grows incredibly quickly. And so if you couple that together, I mean, that's one of the, the problems If with, with having enough material to make things that we need, and we all need things. Um, it's very strong, so it can be used in the building trade, uh, particularly in, in many developing nations. You can see it used as a uh, often as a form of scaffolding, um, but you can use it for all sorts of things like you know rainwater uh, drainage systems because it's a hollow tube essentially. It's incredibly versatile, so I quite like the fact that a plant can cr- create almost an end product just like that. And in doing so, it takes the carbon out of the atmosphere. Do you have a favourite episode? And we don't need to choose one that you featured in. It can be any of the the 39 ways to save the planet. I don't have a favourite episode. I, I, I tend to lean towards the boggy ones or the ones relating to methane because they... They're my sort of chosen topics, really, uh, and ones that I, I study. Um, but also I see the importance of those relating to methane um, because of the quick wins that we could potentially have in terms of climate. But I, I like the series as a collective. I think that's that's the great strength is showing just how many different ways, when you add them all together, can actually come up with a solution. Um and it's testament to the ingenuity of, of our species, really, and being able to come up with these solutions that quite often are, are also have an additional benefit as well. So it's that sometimes, you know, for example, in rice, the additional benefit is you can grow rice in many different areas without necessarily having to, to flood the land. Um, you know, that's a benefit to farmers. That makes it easier for them where, if water should ever become scarce. But the other benefit is the climate benefit. So it's these coupled wins that we're seeing peppered throughout the, the series is, is really interesting and, and gives us a lot of hope, I think. 
that's it for today. Thank you for joining us, Vincent. For listeners interested and for those of you who want to know more, please go to our Resources for Schools webpage to find our classroom activities for 39 Ways to Save the Planet, which you can listen to on iPlayer or BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.